Back to the book of Numbers. It's been a couple of weeks. The last study that we did was July 2nd, and I had the pastor's conference after that, and then we had vacation Bible school after that. And so we've got Israel in the wilderness, and they've had a few victories in the wilderness, and they've picked up some momentum in their march to the promised land. They've seen how God is able to deliver them when they are faithful to him. They had been a bunch of whiners and complainers for the most part, but God is doing a work in their lives. That's what the wilderness experience is for. He allows us to go into the wilderness, those dry places, those places when we seem like we're so alone, but he does so for the purpose of teaching and training. God has done amazing work with some people that have gone to that college of the wilderness. Moses, he spent 40 years, spent 40 years in the world and learning of the world, but then it took 40 years of getting the world out of him and 40 years of lessons in the wilderness in order for him to be used for 40 more years. The apostle Paul spent time in the wilderness being taught and trained. Even our Lord Jesus Christ spent time in the wilderness. And so the wilderness can be a very fruitful place. As far as the born-again believer who has entered into the promised land, promised land being the blessed Christian life, we ought not to go back into the wilderness, but although sometimes that is so necessary. And so there's Israel. They've achieved some victory, and this has not escaped the attention of the king of Moab. He has seen how they defeated these powerful nations, Shion and Bashan, and now they arrive in the area just east of the promised land, just east of the Jordan River, which would today be the country of Jordan, and they're now camping on the plains of Moab. And so he sees this new nation upon the scene, one who has been wandering, but he's probably thinking they're going to be looking for land somewhere, and what if they want my land? And now all of a sudden, here they are, and and, and they've been able to overcome some powerful nations. And so King Balak, he's concerned about what they're going to be doing to his nation, what they're going to be doing to him. And so Israel's been learning to walk in victory. But when any time that it seems like we're able to pick up our pace of our Christian walk, enters in spiritual attack. And so it's been the past two studies that we've seen the mindset of this man. He's seen what has happened for those nations that attempted a physical attack, and he realizes that he's not prepared for that because it seems like their God goes before them. And so he realizes, well, if it's their God who brings victory, then we'll enter in to a spiritual battle against Israel. And so, again, we've seen lessons from this in the past couple of of studies that we've done. We've got to be fortified on both fronts because sometimes the enemy does attack physically. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, we're told to be sober, to be vigilant, because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so the devil can be in the physical attack. We see as he is the god of this age, of this air, and we see these nations that are under the sway of the devil, there can truly be that physical attack. We see the things that go on in our society definitely can be that physical attack. It's a spiritual battle, but a physical attack. But also in the spiritual battle, there can be that sneaky spiritual attack as well. And we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says, I fear at least somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is Christ. And so again, the devil works two ways. We've got to be prepared because there is the reality of spiritual warfare. And so... 
fearing a physical battle against this God of Israel, King Balak calls upon an unknown soothsayer living in Pethor near the Euphrates River. And we have seen this man, Balaam, to be a person of contradictions. This man, who so seems to be a prophet, seems to hear from God, but also he has kind of counterbalanced that with this, this interest in divination and seeking after Baal and, and, uh, and the false gods of the land. He was a non-Israelite, yet he does seem to know Israel's God. He was a mystic, yet he understood so much about God. But again, that just goes to follow what we read about in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that there is one God, you do well, but even the demons believe and tremble. So just because he knows of God does not mean that he knows God. Just because he speaks to God does not mean that he really has a relationship with God. Now, he is going, God is going to use him, he's going to go on to utter some profound prophecies from the Lord, but in the end, and we will see this next week as we enter into chapter 5, the result of his, and if you want to call it ministry, it wasn't a ministry as we define ministry, but the result of his participation is going to be leading Israel into immorality, and that's how the devil is going to work again, if they can't attack Israel in a physical way, they'll lead them astray in a spiritual way, trying to damage their relationship with their God. So it was Balak's plan to weaken Israel at the point of their relationship with God and then defeat them, something that we all should be able to relate to. I mean, hasn't, isn't that how the devil has worked in your life? Trying to attack you at the point of your relationship with God. I was talking with somebody the other day. He actually approached me and was asking questions, and then he told me that he's really felt this attack in his life. And I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, I'm just doubting the Bible. I'm doubting where it came from, how it was put together, and and, and he's just going through the whole thing and ministered for quite a while. And and I just realized, you know, again, it's a spiritual attack because if the enemy can defeat me at that front, then he can tear down my my whole Christian life. And so there's this constant attack that goes on in our society. And where's the the front of this attack at? It's always at the truthfulness of God's word. And again, we see it on TV. So, you know, if you see it on TV, it it must be true. Or if it's on the Internet, if it's on the Internet, you know it's got to be true because they would never post anything false on the Internet. It's just been a wealth of morality into our society. Well, again, the attack is always, they they get somebody with a PhD at the end of his name or somebody who's a theologian. Now, tell me this. What is a theologian? Stuck my hand in my water. I've never done that before. Um, (laughs) Weird feeling. What is a theologian? And whom, I mean, how does a theologian get to be a theologian? I've never seen any theologian classes. I know there's theology classes, but what makes a theologian a theologian? Well, apparently not much, because I've heard some really weird things from some mouths of people called theologians. And so, you know, they'll put some guy from Harvard, he's over the theology department of Harvard or whatever, and he'll be coming up with these unbiblical things. Why? Because the attack is always at the Word of God, because it's the Word of God that is the point of conversation 
between God and his people. It's how God speaks. And so what's the devil trying to do? He's trying to pervert it. And it's the same thing, basically, that's going on here. It's at the point of the people's relationship with God that the attack is going to come. And again, look at your life, the times when you felt kind of far away from God. It was that the attack came at that point of the relationship with God, maybe through some outside sources or whatever it might have been, Once that area was attacked, you felt that distance from your Lord. And so it definitely is an effective plan of attack. And so Balak, King Balak, calls false prophet Balaam and asks if he will come and curse Israel. And so Balaam has a conversation with God. He asks him if he can go. And what did God say? He said, no, no. And he kept pressing because he was a prophet who was motivated by the money. And he saw this easy money, and he wanted to go, and so he kept inquiring of God. And we saw a Christian concept in that, that when God says no the first time, don't ask the second time. Are you trying to change the mind of God? As you get the answer of no, you've gotten the perfect will of God, and you need to be obedient to what God has called you to and what God has told you to do. And then we looked at concerning the... The, the nature and the character of this prophet. We see it in the New Testament as Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, speaking of false prophets, but these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. We'll see that in weeks to come. And will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery, and again, this does relate back to what we'll see next week. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls... They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Again, that was his priority. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And so it was after that time when Balaam decided to go that he had that great donkey debate. Now he arrives upon the area where Israel is. He meets the king. The king gets excited and is ready for the cursing. But really what we have at each attempt of cursing, we have what's called an oracle or an oration, just some kind of speech that he gives after his attempt at cursing. And so we've been looking at last time, and then today we'll finish with the last two, I believe it is, the four oracles that God gave Balaam that emphasize certain basic truths about the people of Israel. And so you have this false prophet, and he's attempting to curse God's people. If you're a born-again person here tonight, you're a God's people. And so we can kind of be concerned, or maybe you listen to every man and answer, our pastor's perspective, it's called now, on K-Wave, and... You know, a lot of times the question is, can a believer be demon-possessed? Or can a believer be cursed? Can somebody put a curse on a believer? Well, this is a section of Scripture that we really have an answer to those questions because God speaking through this prophet, he's giving these basic truths about the people of God and God's relationship with the people of God, all under the context of the attempt to curse them. 
keeping in mind the context of the enemies of God desiring to curse the children of God. We saw a commonality between the first three oracles. Each time seven altars were built upon which seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Kind of a vain attempt to reach God how he has commanded his people. This was an ungodly attempt at trying to get at God in a way that he has commanded his people to worship him, but obviously it's not going to come to pass. These altars were constructed not in the tabernacle, but on high places, and these high places appear to be the areas of worship for the false god Baal. And so what they're doing is they're doing one of the worst things that can happen because, again, where is the attack? The point of attack is at the word of God. But what is the avenue through the word of God? Well, it's supposed to be the church of Jesus Christ, not the denomination. You know what I'm talking about. Jesus' is church. And so there's another area where the attack is, and that's so few churches nowadays are preaching the word of God. And so, again, the attack continues to rage on. And so what they have done here, Balaam and Balak, it's kind of a hybrid attempt at reaching God and that, well, we see that they offer those sacrifices and seven seems to be some kind of holy number, so we'll use that, but we'll do it on a high place because that's where they are used to worshiping. In the worship of Baal, sacrifices were made, and then what they would do is, and we see that happening here, some of the inner parts of the animal were used for the purpose of divination. Divination is the attempt to force your God to speak to you. Chapter 24, verse 1, if you'll look at that, it's very clear in what's happening here. It says, Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery. He set his face towards the wilderness. So it's telling us that in those times, he was using sorcery in order to seek God out. Okay, chapter 23, starting at verse 27. We see, oh, actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to go in first to the first oracle. We looked at the first oracle last time, and so just very quickly to go through the first couple of them and then get into our study. And the first oracle is in chapter 22, verse 41, through chapter 23, verse 4. It's here that God delivers to this desperate king a series of truths, once again, about his people. First, Again, I'm not going to get into the depth of this. You can get the CD on the study. But first thing he tells them is, those whom God blesses, man cannot curse. And so as God has blessed you by inhabiting you with his spirit, the, the devil can't inhabit you. There's no place for the devil to come and take possession of you. And so if you're truly a born again believer, the devil may be able to torment you. He may be able to tempt you, but he cannot possess you. And so as you are God's, your life is hidden in the Lord or protected by the Lord. So those whom God blesses, man cannot curse. We saw secondly, as God's people are chosen by him, they are then set apart for him. As God's people are chosen by him, how do we know those who are chosen by him? Those who have came into faith by repenting and receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are then set apart as his. The third basic truth concerning God's people is they are very resilient. Resilient? In chapter 23, verse 10, speaking of his people, who can count the dust of Jacob? One or number, uh, one-fourth of Israel. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. And so 
Israel, they have been dispersed as the dust of the earth. They're in every corner of the world. Jewish people are in every corner of the world, gathered together in Israel, but still even today, in every corner of the world. The second oracle of Balaam, they now ascend Mount Pishkah. The first oracle had to do with God's possession of his people. The next oracle has to do with his victory work through his people. He first gains possession of his people, then he sends his people on a mission. And so we saw that in chapter, uh, same chapter, verses 18 through 24, the third oracle of Balaam. So this time they, the king and the false prophet, go up to Peor, a mountain associated with the worship of Baal. We can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 3. And they go through basically the same sacrificial routine. Looking at verse 27 of chapter 23, then Balaam, uh, Balak said to Balaam, Please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam, so King Balak is starting to get desperate here, took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. Balaam's perspective is going to be changed here, though. It's here now that he sees the nation of Israel and how they are ruled by a king who is greater than any other. He's going to be getting some insight that even some of the Jews were not sure of that didn't really understand. We're told in Revelation 17, 14, that there will be those who will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome him, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And I'll show you in a minute that I believe that this false prophet is really getting a a view of that. Not going to understand exactly what he's seeing, but just he's going to understand the magnitude of the God that they truly serve. And it's the same thing that the world sees in you as a born-again believer. And that's, again, where the conflict comes. Because who is it that they see in you as you go out, as you witness, as you live your Christian life? They see Jesus Christ. And they see Jesus Christ. And maybe they want to curse you, but they can't curse you. I know that there's those who've been harmed or whatever, but absent from the body to be present with the Lord. Now, on Sunday... Mornings, I've been doing this for a few weeks now. I've been meeting with whosoever desires to meet with me in the back of the church. And it's, it's kind of geared towards new believers and people that want to kind of learn the Bible who, who are unfamiliar with the Bible. And it's been going actually pretty good. We've been going through the Gospel of John, as I said. And last week we looked at John the Baptist. Um, John said in John chapter 1, verse 34, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And so John the Baptist, he's the greatest of all prophets, Jesus said. Why? Because he's the one who ushered in Messiah. Now, John the Baptist, he's a picture of the last of the Old Testament prophets because he spoke of Messiah to come. Messiah came very quickly in his time, obviously, in the midst of his ministry. But also, there's a transition going on here, the last of the Old Testament prophets, but the first of the New Testament type of witness because now he is able to speak of Messiah who has come. And I say all of this because Balaam's perspective is about to be changed in a most profound way. Chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Now keep in mind, he's on top of a mountain looking over the encamped Israelis. 
Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Can you remember what he was looking at? You remember what he was seeing? Uh, Suzanne, if you can put the slide up. Suzanne, the slide. He saw the cross. He saw the cross of Christ. And we looked at this when we were starting in Numbers. And again, you can see how the layout uh, was perfectly. Now, this was all arranged by God. It wasn't just Israel. You know, he didn't have Thursdays at 7 o'clock on the bottom. That's from our advertising. But this is how God told them to lay out. And it's just interesting that the largest amount was at the bottom. Well, again, this all fits with what a cross would look like. And the smallest was at the top, and those on the sides were pretty even. But what was it in the middle? The middle was the tabernacle. What's in the tabernacle? The tabernacle is the presence of God. And again, if you look at the cross, what do you see? You see the horizontal, and you see the vertical. You see the horizontal, and that's a fulfillment of the second of the greatest of commandments. We are to love others as we love ourselves. You see the vertical. It's a fulfillment of the greatest of commandments, that we are to love God with all of who we are. But it was on that cross that you could see in the middle, and there was the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was because Christ was crucified upon that cross and resurrected, all that's encompassed in that, what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit. And now today, we see this in Acts chapter 2, men and women can be filled with, with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's almost exactly what we're seeing here in verse 2. And Balaam raised his eyes. Now, he's been up there and he's been looking, but now he's seeing it for what it is. Now, again, he's not, he's not comprehending all of this in detail, but we've got the scriptures and we understand what he's seeing here. Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Now, it's the Spirit of God coming upon him for the purpose of God using him This is not a salvation experience by Balaam, not by any stretch of the imagination. But he is seeing something that just really grips him. He's seeing something that's just an amazement to him. The presence of Almighty God amongst his people with the picture of power being the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the display of the cross through the witness of God's people that divides the soul from the lies of paganism to the truth of God. And so that's what he's seeing. He's seeing the display of the cross through the witness of God's people. And again, this is exactly what we are to be doing, just as Israel's doing. Israel didn't really understand, because again, the picture is always pointing towards Messiah. But looking back on it, it's just plain as day to me. As these people were obedient to God as they were camping, as they were told to camp, as we are living our lives, as we are told to live our lives, then God dwelt amongst them. God will dwell amongst us. And it's all for the purpose of being a witness. Being a witness and being an example to all, to king in despair, to a false prophet, to Joe out on the street, whoever it might be, to be faithful in what God has called us to do, be faithful in who God has called us to be. Now, as far as Balaam here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, we get a little bit of a picture. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, and that would be Balaam, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Problem with Balaam, he's going to get a glimpse of the power, but not receive of his, its transforming 
ability. Again, it all boils down to knowing of Jesus versus knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is a relationship. Knowing of Jesus is that which even the demons do, even this false prophet did. There was a king that Paul ministered to. My wife and I were there. King Agrippa was examining Paul in Caesarea. It's right on the Mediterranean. It's right on the coast. It's kind of an oceanside resort back then, if you will. And King Agrippa was, he was examining Paul. And Paul, when you examined Paul, what did you see? You saw the cross of Christ. And then Agrippa responded, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. I wonder if Balaam was almost persuaded, but almost isn't good enough. To almost do it is to miss it by a mile. For Balaam, it's the picture of the camp that opened his eyes to the reality of God through his people. And that's what we see in the oracle, verses 3 through 9. Then he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with his eyes wide open. And so the idea is he's falling down in worship, but he can't remove his eyes from this sight. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. His king, well, it says his, capital H, speaking of God's king, that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's kind of interesting. Why would he use Agag here? Agag wasn't going to come upon the scene for a couple of hundred of years, but Agag was more than likely a title, kind of like Caesar was or Pharaoh was. There was probably many Agags. That was just a king of the Amalekites. But nonetheless, the Amalekites, as we're going to see in a little bit, they were a very powerful nation of the day. And so Balaam, he's realizing that this king is more powerful than all of the kings of the world. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down and he lies down like a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. Now put yourself in King Balaam's side. He's saying, what? What? I mean, do you really want to hear all of this? If you're him, he shall break their bones and pierce them with arrows. Here I've hired you to come and curse these people, and instead, he's not only not cursing the people, really, he's cursing the king. Because again, these things, they're going to come to pass. But it's interesting as well how it closes here, this oracle, this third oracle, be one more. Last part of verse 9. Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who cursed you. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice that this closes with this truth that reverberates throughout all of the ages. God wants us to know that. He gave that to Abraham back in Genesis as a witness. Now he's using Israel as a witness throughout the ages. He reiterates it here so that we would see, know, and be reminded that God's hand is upon Israel even to our day. Again, as you see the nation Israel, you should be reminded of the goodness of God, the promises of God, and the plan of God. 
As Israel is in existence, you're reminded that God's word is true. When Israel is in existence, you'll be in heaven because the rapture will have happened in the second coming of Christ. But Israel, Israel will always be there. Israel will never go away. And it's interesting, when somebody tries to curse them, there's the reminder. And again, this is reverberated throughout all of the ages. Period of time when you kind of wonder and churches develop some different theologies because Israel was in existence, but again, in May of 1948, they came back. Verse 10, then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam and he struck his hands together. He's just like, I've had enough. Struck his hands together and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now, therefore, flee to your place, I said. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. So Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord and do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. And so he realizes that, no matter how much money he offers me, I can't go against God. I, he wouldn't say this, I know, but he's seen the cross. And he's seen the power of God. And he realizes that all the gold in the world is nothing before the power of God. Apostle Paul entered into Corinth. And what did he say? I came to you preaching nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because he knew that was the power of God unto salvation of mankind. Jesus Christ and him crucified. He preached the cross of Jesus Christ because as Christ was hung upon that cross, all of the sins of humanity was placed upon that. And that was the only force that has ever existed that was able to deal with the sins of man. I'm not calling it just a force. You know what I mean. It was the power of God to deal with the sins of mankind throughout all of the ages. And then we enter into this last oracle, and this last oracle is really more of a prophecy, verses 14 through to the end of the chapter. Let's go ahead and read for a bit. And now indeed I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. I've got some bad news, king. Not just the breaking of the bones, but let me show you what he's going to do to your people. Now, when he refers to them as your people, he's not speaking, just excuse me, not just speaking of the Moabites, but he's speaking of all those who are contrary to God. Verse 15, so he took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also, his enemy, shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. We've been seeing some of these, the short of these prophecies in Isaiah and these long prophecies of Jesus Christ and the victory that he achieves over the world. So he's going to address four main nations for the remainder of this chapter. The first one is Amalek. It says, then he looked on Amalek and he took up this oracle and said, Amalek was first amongst the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. Now, Amalek was a world power at the time. They were in the promised land. 
And God gave orders to Moses, but then Joshua, as Joshua entered in, to go and to wipe out all of the inhabitants of the land. Amalek Amalek was the first nation to attack Israel after their release from Egypt. Remember the instance when Moses was up there, and as long as his hands were held in the air, they were victorious. As soon as he brought them down, then they started to lose the battle. It's the first mention that we have of Jacob, I'm sorry, not Jacob, of uh, Joshua, Joshua type of Jesus Christ, and it's in Christ that in the battle that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. But these two men, Aaron and Hur, held his arms up, and they were able to achieve that victory. But it was also Amalek, if you recall, it was in this book, when they were just getting ready to enter into the promised land, but through a lack of faith, they couldn't. And God said, well, I'm going to send you back out into the wilderness. Then Israel said, no, we're going to go in anyway. And they went in anyway, and they were defeated and cast back out. Well, it was Amalek who defeated them and cast them back out. They were trying to achieve in the flesh, which God wanted them to achieve in the spirit. God told King Saul to exterminate them, and he failed and probably lost his crown because of it. It was a, a member of, uh, of the Amaleks, who, uh, Amalekite, who boasted of killing Saul, though he didn't kill Saul, but because Saul didn't wipe him out, whatever element of the flesh you don't wipe out is going to boast over you. Next, King David defeated them and subdued them, but kept them. Then it was King Hezekiah who finally annihilated them, and then never have we heard from them again. Verses 21 through 22. Then he looked on the Kenites, and he took up this oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. How long until Asher carries you away captive? These were a nomadic people who nested in the mountains in the region of the area. History tells us that during the Assyrian campaigns, Assyria would conquer them and take them captive, and they would no longer exist. Next is the people of the West, verses 23 and 24. Then he took up his oracle and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber. And so shall Amalekite until he perishes. Now, when it says Amalekite, that's not really a good translation at the end of verse 24. It should read, and if you can, you can look at a tool of Hebrew or whatever and, and check this out. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 24, But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber, and he also shall perish forever, is how it really should read. Now, who would that be? Well, God has given us these prophecies so that we would look at the, well, we would look at his book and we would look at the history book and we would see how these things line up because a lot of God's prophecies are through the the nations because the nations are that which is recorded outside of scriptures that validate what we read inside of scriptures. And so we look at these nations and we see the biblical truthfulness of these and history does not disprove them at all. But then here we go with a, well, I really like how in the scriptures God just lays it all out on the line. He gives us these, these prophecies that are so clear. And what he's talking about here and looking at history, looking at scriptures, he's speaking of ancient Greece coming from the West and probably the campaign of Alexander the Great. And I just say Alexander the Great because he had a campaign that conquered the known world, but it was very short-lived. And then when Rome came in, they conquered Greece, and Greece never again existed. 
as a world power. They were a second-class nation from then on. So he also shall perish forever, and they have perished forever. Look at Greece today. Look at the turmoil that they are in today. Again, when God gives these prophecies and these promises, they come true. And the good thing about that is I know the thoughts that he thinks towards me, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give me, to give you a future and a hope. And so as I've seen his past prophecies that have come to pass and continue to do so today, I can hold on to the promises that he has given to me, knowing just as God has been faithful in the past, he'll be faithful again. The Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17, again using the nations as an example in his sermon at the Areopagus as he was being examined by the Greeks, He said, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined, and this is key in prophecy, he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord. That's what these prophecies of the nations are for, so that man would see the truthfulness of them, and man would seek the Lord. And the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. When Paul says we, he's speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking of all humanity. All humanity exists for the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God, as we saw a little while ago on the cross, so that you would be that witness for the Lord. Unfortunately, there's the unbeliever who exists for the glory of God as well. God can be glorified through the positive. He can be glorified through the negative. And what I mean by the negative is through a donkey or even through a false prophet. And unfortunately, he's going to be glorified through those who go through the tribulation at some point point in the nations as they completely fall apart. But the fact of the matter is God is God. And it doesn't do good enough to know of him. You must know him. You must have that relationship with him. And as you have that relationship with him, there's still going to be hard times. We're entering into a hard time from Israel in the next chapter. But nonetheless, God continues to go with them. Verse 25, so Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went on his way. Father, we see, Lord, just the the nations, and how the nations rage, and how they rage against you. But nonetheless, Father, you continue to have a plan that is being worked out in the lives of all humanity. And Father, we just thank you that you have brought us in to be part of that plan. And I just pray, Father, in the midst of your workings and dealings, I pray that, Lord, even though it may seem that things are falling apart all around us, but Lord, just may we be found faithful, continue to press forward not remembering those things which are behind, but seeking forth that higher calling in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, as you've been displayed on every page of the Bible from the Old Testament all the way through to the end, we just want to glorify you, declaring Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so, Father, I just lift up those who are here tonight, that you would bless them for coming out, that you would go before them in their lives, that you would minister to them, but even more than that, minister through them, Lord, to this dying world, that they would not be the negative example, but the positive example through a right relationship with Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.